A Northwest Airlines MD-80 is about to take off out of Detroit Metropolitan Airport when something goes wrong. What caused this flight to become unstable? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hello. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> we just uh, recorded a Miranda sode, so plugging that again, go listen on Patreon. There's a trailer on a the website. Yep. Go become a patron and go listen to that. Thank you to Helen, who is our new patron, and Tom, if we didn't thank you already. But they are both from the UK. Yeah. yeah. We know that because they have to pay us in pounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. So. That is true. Welcome. Thank yeah. you for contributing. Yeah. Because believe it or not, that helps us want to do this. Yeah. Also, More than that, it helps fund this. Yes, yes. There are costs involved with this every month. And it helps cover said costs. Yeah. So I think that's all we needed to say for that, right? That being said... <laughs> What are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering Northwest Airlines Flight 255. Thank you to James Wadsworth for recommending this. Thanks, James. Yeah. Prepared for me to get very angry. Yeah, she was told to get angry at this one. She will get angry at this one. <laughs> and that's pretty true. This one's going to take you on a ride for sure. Great. And it's uh, it's definitely interesting. It's not. I don't think it's going to be a super long one, but it is going to be interesting. So this happened on August 16th of 1987. This was a DC-9-82, otherwise known as an MD-80. Ah. It was an MD-82, a mad dog. With Which the... is a bigger, better version of the DC-9. Yes, it was an updated version of the DC-9. The tail number was November 312 Romeo Charlie. This plane was to fly that day from Minneapolis-St. Paul to Saginaw, Michigan to Detroit Wayne then on to Phoenix, then on to Orange County, or Santa Ana. Or Cal John Wayne. Or John Wayne. California. Whatever name, yeah, yeah, whatever name you want to call it. In California. <laughs> Shout out to all our California listeners, because we have the most listeners in California. So. Yep. The captain for this flight was to be John R. Mays. He was 57 years old. He had 20,859 hours total, of which 1,359 hours were on the MD-80. The first officer was David J. Dodds. He was 35 years old. He had 8,044 hours total, of which 1,604 hours were on the MD-80. So our captain is one of the most experienced we've ever talked about at 20,859 hours. That's a lot. The first officer, however, actually had more time on the MD-80. It's the same with the Miranda Sode. Yeah. The first officer had more experience on the 47 than the captain did. Yep. The flight crew picked up the plane at Minneapolis that day and operated flight 750 to Saginaw. Then, the flight number changed to flight 255, which it then kept for the remainder of the flights for that day, all the way to Santa Ana in California. The, the Sa-Nata-Ana? Sa-Nata-Ana. <laughs> if you don't know what that's from, you need to look up Jeff Dunham. Okay, go, go on. Continuing. <laughs> the flight departed Saginaw at 6.35 p.m. and arrived at Detroit Wayne at 7.42 p.m. The plane accidentally taxied past their gate upon arrival at Detroit and had to make a 180-degree turn to get back to its gate. Oh, that's a good omen for the rest of this. 
That yes. is the omen for the rest of <laughs> You'll see. Just to start that out. I thought that was a little fun fact. They threw that in the report, and I was like, wow, that was totally pointless. But actually, no, it yeah, wasn't. that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> okay, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. You'll see. Upon arrival at the gate, the passengers staying in Detroit disembark. Then a mechanic entered the airplane, checked the airplane and cabin maintenance logbooks, and it was determined that there were no discrepancies, so no maintenance was performed while the airplane was on the ground at Detroit, which was a large hub for Northwest Airlines. So it's typical that when they're on the ground at these large hubs, they try to get whatever maintenance issues they can get taken care of, small ones, while they're there, because like, they have the resources. Like Frontier would do here. Right. Or United. Yep. Exactly. Or Delta would do in Atlanta. So anytime your airplane's at a major hub, you should actually be thankful because that's where major and minor maintenance things get taken care of because they have all the resources needed to do so. Even small things, say that little flippy thing on the back of the seat in front of you that holds the table up, that's broken. They'll fix it there. You just have to tell somebody. There, we have a story time for that, but you're going to have to wait till the post episode to hear it. Yeah. 10 to 15 minutes before the flight was due to depart the gate at Detroit, a gate agent brought the flight release documents down to the airplane and entered the cockpit. At that time, only the first officer was in the cockpit, as the captain was performing an external walk-around of the airplane. Just check the airplane, make sure it's good to go. The first officer inspected the document package with the dispatch documents. He then signed the release and returned the signed copy to the agent. The agent left the airplane and met the captain while he was conducting his walk-around, and he showed him the signed copy of the release. He reviewed the document, then confirmed that he was happy with the release and thanked the agent. What was the release for? The release is just the general document. It gives you the manifest, the route, all that stuff. It oh, has so everything. it's like it's the, the, the good to go for the next leg of the flight. Though. Yes, it's the dispatch documents for the next leg of the flight. Okay, okay, that makes sense. All right. Cool. And then some. At 8.29 p.m., the final weight tabulation was delivered to the flight crew. So what their weight would actually be for the, for the airplane for takeoff. At 8.32 p.m., the flight departed the gate with 149 passengers and six crew. A full flight. During the pushback, the flight crew accomplished the before-engine start checklist. At 8.33 p.m. and 4 seconds, they began to start the engines. At 8.34 p.m. and 40 seconds, so about 35 seconds later, the engine start and pushback were both complete, and the ground crew disconnected the tow bar. Ten seconds later, the west ground controller cleared the flight to taxi via the ramp, hold short of Delta, and expect runway 3C, 3 center. He also informed the flight crew that ATIS information, hotel, was now current, and asked them if they had the information. So the ATIS information, we've talked about it in the past, it changes regularly, and it's given a designated letter of the alphabet. And that, you're supposed to repeat that back to controllers when you make initial contact with them, to tell them that you're aware of the conditions of the airport, the weather, those kinds of things. Yeah, it, so, it gives important information to the pilots. Right. And every time the ATIS goes through a change, the air traffic controllers typically inform the ground crew on their initial contact of the change that's been made, if there's a change in short order. So in other words, he informed the airplane on the ground that the information had just changed to hotel from whatever it was previously. Just to make sure that the flight crew were aware, there's a new ATIS you might want to check. The flight crew were originally expecting to use runway 21 for their takeoff, which the airport had been using for the departure up till just a little bit before, just a few minutes before the time that the flight pushed back from their gate. Pretty sure they were expecting 21 left. 
The flight crew was watching the weather carefully as there was expected thunderstorms along much of their route from Detroit to Phoenix, and some of the storms were quickly approaching the Detroit airport. This had the flight crew anxious to get going, though they were slightly delayed pushing back from the gate. As they pushed back, it began to rain. Oh, good. Yep. The flight crew acknowledged the taxi instructions and stated that they had the current ATIS. The crew had not gotten an information hotel, as a matter of fact, from the for the ATIS information yet. They proceeded to do so, though, immediately upon being informed of it. The new ATIS information told the crew that, about the runway change, and that the temperature was 88 degrees, and low-level wind shear advisories were in effect, as there had been alerts in the tower. Again, everything seems normal so far? Generally. Like, yeah, it's raining. The potential wind shear makes mm -hmm. sense. Pretty normal stuff at airports. Yeah. At 8.35 p.m. and 43 seconds, the ground controller cleared the flight to continue taxiing, then to exit the ramp at Taxiway Charlie, and to taxi to runway 3 center. Then he instructed them to change radio frequencies to contact another ground controller. The first officer repeated the taxi clearance, but he did not repeat the frequency change, and he did not change the frequency. The first officer did inform the captain, Charlie for 3 center, right. It's a really confusing phrase, but that's literally what he said. He's confirming 3 center, right? Hmm. The takeoff performance data in the dispatch documents were based on using runways 21 left and 21 right, which were much longer than runway 3 center, the shortest runway at Detroit. The final weight of the airplane for takeoff was to be 144,047 pounds. Because it has to do with the amount of runway they have, right? Yep, exactly. Oh, is that going to change because they changed runways? It doesn't change the distance needed, but the no, runway does length... The run, it can is, it can could, they take off on that runway with that amount of weight? It could cause a problem. We'll the first officer second. calculated that they could use that runway. We'll get to okay, that in a second. Cool. At 8.37 p.m. and 8 seconds, the captain asked the first officer if they could use runway 3 center for takeoff based My on their weight. My exact question. <laughs> That's why I said, just hold on. I'm getting to it. Don't get ahead of me. Sorry. <laughs> The first officer referred to the company's runway takeoff weight chart manual to verify that their takeoff weight was below the allowable limits for runway 3 center. The chart showed that with flaps set to 11 degrees, the maximum takeoff weight for runway 3 center at 85 degrees Fahrenheit was 147,500 pounds, and at 90 degrees Fahrenheit it was 145,100 pounds. They're between that range. So this meant that they were within limits for both temperatures, so they were fine. Okay. The first officer reported this to the captain, and the captain concurred with the evaluation. During the taxi, out of the ramp, the captain missed the turnoff for taxiway Charlie. Jeez, what is up? Do they just not get enough sleep or something? The first officer contacted the West Ground Controller about the missed taxiway. The West Ground Controller then again repeated his instruction to taxi to runway 3 center, and again told the flight to contact the East Ground Controller on another frequency. The first officer repeated the frequency change, then contacted that east controller. The east ground controller gave the flight a new taxi route to runway 3 center and advised the flight about the wind shear alerts, just so they're aware again. So now they're back on track heading toward that runway. The flight crew acknowledged the given information. At 8.42 p.m. and 11 seconds, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to position and hold on runway 3 center. He also informed them that there would be a three-minute delay for separation behind the traffic that had just departed ahead of them. 
At 8.44 p.m. and 4 seconds, the flight was cleared for takeoff. At 8.44 and 21 seconds, the engine power increased. As they rolled down the runway, the auto throttle would normally engage. However, it did not do so this time. The captain immediately noticed and notified the first officer, who scanned around the cockpit for answers. The airplane's mode was not set in the takeoff configuration mode. This mode would normally engage the autothrottle once a high-power setting was selected. The first officer switched this mode on, and the autothrottle then engaged. A few seconds later, the first officer called 100 knots. About 12 seconds later, the first officer called rotate, as the airplane reached its planned takeoff speed. Eight seconds later, as the captain was pulling back on the control column, the stall warning and the stick shaker activated. Witnesses noticed that the takeoff roll was longer than that made by similar airplanes. It was estimated that they rotated about 1,200 to 1,500 feet short of the departure end of the runway. And they noticed that the airplane rotated to a higher pitch angle than is normally seen on other DC-9-type aircraft, nearly striking the tail on the runway as it lifted off. Immediately as the airplane became airborne, it began rolling to the left, then to the right, estimated as rolling between 15 degrees and 90 degrees with each bank, constantly tilting left and right. The witnesses stated that they then saw the airplane bank left as it was less than 50 feet off the ground, and then the left wing struck a light pole and a car rental lot. The airplane then began flaming from the left side wing area as some debris fell away. The airplane then continued rolling to the left as it continued across the rental lot. It then struck another light pole and a second lot, struck the sidewall of the roof of the car rental facility, At this point, the airplane was in a 90-degree left bank, winged down, as it struck the roof and it continued to roll over to the left. It then impacted a road nearly inverted, just outside of the airport boundary fence. The airplane slid along, disintegrating as it slid down the road, impacting occupied cars until it struck a railroad embankment and disintegrated. Fire erupted along the entire debris path, about a half a mile, and then the plane exploded upon final impact, causing massive fire. Three occupied cars were struck in the accident, as well as many unoccupied cars in the rental lots, being destroyed either by impact, forces, or fire. So who, like, repairs those? Because that's someone's vehicle. They just... What did they just say to the insurance company? Uh, my car got hit by a plane? <laughs> they just <laughs> signed that one off, probably, and get you a new car. Oh, I would The hope rental so. companies, it's kind of par for the course. Those cars are covered... To the nines, so if anything happens to them, they just get replaced. Sure, that's anyways. why it's expensive to rent a car. That is why it's expensive to rent a car. But for those occupied vehicles that were actually their cars... Um, yeah. So... The airline probably covered it, right? Mm, I don't know. I, I have no so. idea. Also, what happened to V1? They so, called Rotate. There was no V1. You know, I don't know. Supposedly, there was a V1 somewhere, but in the report, I didn't find it. Huh. I was like... There's one place I can look. Hold on just a sec. They were at rotation speed, though. They were at their proper rotation so, speed. Okay. I, I just find that a little weird that there wasn't a V1 before the rotate. But Yeah, I hear you. Give me just a second. I'm going to okay. look this up. <laughs> because there is one place that I think I can find it. Also, another thing that I'm a little worried about is they were worried about the auto throttle while they were trying to climb out? We'll get to that in a minute, because that's a really key thing, actually. Okay, I'm like, why are you worried about autothrottle on takeoff? That autothrottle should have told them something else. Oh, good. That means they didn't do something right, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There it is. 
It was at 8.44 and 57 seconds he called V1. Oh. And then half a second later he called rotate. So it was... That's pretty normal, actually. V1, yeah, rotate. Yeah. Because as speed increases, that's that's not a straight a straight line. It increases like this. On so, a curved line. Right. So as speed increases, it's getting faster. It's increasing faster and faster. Your acceleration is faster. So typically with, with a lot of airplanes, V1 and rotate can be far apart. But in airplanes like this, they can also be very close together. So yeah. V1 and rotate happen very quickly. But they're not simultaneous is what I'm trying to get at. Right. Okay, cool. Glad we figured that out because yes. that was bothering me real bad. <laughs> 148 of the 149 passengers and all six crew members perished in the accident. Yes, you heard me right. That means there was one survivor. Two first responders were wandering the wreckage as soon as they arrived, looking for survivors, when one of them started hearing something. He asked the other first responders several times if he heard something, but he didn't at first. It's a ghost. Just kidding. That's kind of horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but then he did hear something. It was the faint moaning of a four-year-old girl who was trapped under a row of seats and badly injured. How the heck did she survive? Why is it always children, too? The seats had managed to collapse over her, basically keeping her safe. Wow. Good for her. Well, for the most part. She still had burns over 30% of her body. I was getting there. Well, yeah, that would happen when the, you know, plane was on fire. They spotted her and lifted the seats away. They picked the girl up and immediately rushed her to the hospital. Her name was Cecilia Sheehan? I don't know. I think it's Sheehan. Cecilia Sheehan. I'm sorry. She recovered after having skin grafts put over about 30% of her body. Oh. She lost her brother and both parents in the accident. Her six-year-old brother. Yes. Well, that's horrible. She must have a horrible survivor's guilt. She was raised by her uncle and aunt. She has remained mostly silent about the accident her entire life since. She has a tattoo of the airplane on the inside of her left wrist that complement the many scars she was left with. Wow. On the ground, two people were killed in a car, and one person was severely injured, as well as four others that suffered minor injuries. Can you imagine just driving along, minding your own business, and your car gets hit by a plane? Yeah. No. (laughs) (laughs) Or, like, do you see it coming, or do you just not, you don't register it? You're like, what? There's a few videos for that we can watch later. One of them you know, the the ATR. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. dips down through the road. Yeah. That one's horrifying. There's another one, too, we'll watch later in the post-episode. That's crazy. So she was a sole survivor, and yes, she said it wasn't until about middle school age that she realized she was the only survivor. Like, she didn't know how severe the accident was, really, because she didn't remember everything. She knew her parents, of course, and everything were gone, but she didn't realize she was the only survivor, really, till that point in her life. And that was when it kind of hit her, how she got really bad survivor's guilt after that and everything. Mm. But she also took it as an opportunity to realize that she needs to live her life to the fullest. It was given to her. She's now gone to school for, I don't remember what, do you remember? So we watched a documentary, which I'll talk more about later. She says at the time she was getting her Master's of Arts in Art Therapy. Cool. She's married, and one of the first responders who saved her actually danced with her at her wedding. Cute! Yeah. And they're in contact all the time so that's nice and then they have a memorial built for the the crash and they have every year uh on the anniversary of the crash 
a gathering of the family members of the people who that perished. Lost, yeah. And she had opted not to go for all the way up until very recently, basically. I don't blame her. I mean, she lost her entire family, her immediate family. Yes, but also she feels out of place because they're all mourning who they're, they've lost and they right. weren't on board. And she's the only one who survived. Yes. So it's that survivor's guilt thing. Yeah. But she accidentally ran into the family of one of the victims and she kept her cool, but the family member was like sobbing because this was like, she was the last puzzle piece of the entire story and no one had ever met her. Because she had been so quiet about it. She'd been silent literally until very recently, actually. I think it was 2012 when that happened or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that's when she decided that she would start going. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, that's a lot. I mean, I can't even imagine you lost your entire family and you're the only one who survived. It would be really weird, I think, for me to to go Yes. to a, a memorial with people who lost their family and you're the only survivor. It's it's weird. That mm -hmm. That would feel weird. But when it happened, the whole country kind of rallied behind her getting better because... She got like $130,000. She had thousands upon thousands of letters and... She had thousands of teddy bears sent to her Stuffed from animals. all over the world. The captain's wife sent her flowers. Aww. Yeah, like all all sorts of rallying behind her because for a while they weren't sure if she how survived. she was going to recover and anything like yeah. that. Eventually it was determined that she would fully recover. And so, you know, like there was literally parades of people waiting and hoping that she was going to get better, which obviously she did. So Wow. Well, good for her for surviving. She mm -hmm. didn't even really do anything. The plane did it for her. Right. But but that's also horrible fortunate. that she lost her entire family and mm -hmm. was the only person to survive. Yes. I'm glad they found her, though, because if they didn't find her, she probably wouldn't have survived. Right. Yes. So, everything being said about that, what happened? <laughs> yes. I want to know. You look at me so angrily. <laughs> feel attacked. Well, the anger is coming. <laughs> so, the investigation was done by... The NTSB! The National Transportation Safety Board. They arrived on site and began sifting through wreckage and found the black boxes, which were sent to their analysis lab in Washington, D.C. While part of the team stayed to go through wreckage, others went to conduct interviews. Air Traffic Control, or ATC, told their side of the story, relaying how weather was coming in, and the runway changed from runway 21 left to runway 3 center. To confirm that this was the best decision, investigators took data from the Low-Level Wind Shear Alert System, or LLWAS, which actually takes a lot longer to say. Yes, it does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to determine up-to-date wind data. They found that at 8.45, a minute after takeoff clearance was given, winds were coming from 305 degrees, between 12 and 16 knots, which would have produced a crosswind between 11.8 and 16 knots and a headwind of 0 to 2.8 knots. The only other runway that would have been more favorable was runway 27, but that was closed. So the investigators determined that ATC made the best decision they could. Investigators also determined that the crew was able to take off on this new runway, despite it being shorter than planned. Calculations they did, the same as the crew would have done, show that the weight of the plane did not inhibit takeoff. Okay, so, great. What happened? What went wrong? Can, can, can you be patient? No. I know you can't. There's a lot coming, <laughs> don't worry. There's a lot on its way. Witness interviews contained reports of fire in the left engine during takeoff, 
but the investigators looked through the engine and determined that the only evidence of fire was actually from when the wing struck the light pole, ruptured the fuel tank, and the fire spread to the engine that was pulling in oxygen. There was no actual fire produced from the engine, so that was not the cause of the crash. Another clue from the interviews was that the plane couldn't climb and was flying nose high. This kind of sounds similar to some previous accidents we've covered with microbursts, referred to episodes 38 to 41. Yes, all of those. Air traffic control had received a report of a microburst, but that was received while the flight was still at the gate. And the low-level wind shear alert system did not detect anything at the time of takeoff. That's the, the only reason that abbreviation exists is for writing. I know. Not for saying. <laughs> Just so that they don't have to write the entire thing out every time. Well, that's what I did. So. I remember when we were doing those episodes, I had to write that phrase like nine times. <laughs> it was terrible. At this point, they couldn't confirm that the plane didn't experience a microburst because the flight data recorder was damaged and had to be sent to the manufacturer for a full retrieval of data. So let's move on while we wait for that. What else could have caused a plane to descend while nose high? In reviewing the cockpit voice recorder, or CVR, which was in pristine condition, somehow, the investigators heard the stall warning go off. With proper configuration, it would take a speed of 121 knots indicated airspeed or lower to stall. So that seemed... odd. Suspicious. Really weird. But there's no FDR to use yet, so let's move on to wreckage. Investigators found the center console from the cockpit and found an odd setting. The flap handle was in the up or retracted position. Oh, no. (laughs) There was actually damage showing that the handle was in the position during impact. So let's talk about the function of flaps and slats for a moment while Miranda freaks out. Flaps extend from the back of the wing, and slats extend out the front of the wing. You've probably seen these parts moving during takeoff and landing when you're out flying when there's not a pandemic. Yeah. These two functions create a larger surface area of the wing, meaning that the plane can still have lift when flying at low speeds during phases of flight like takeoff and landing. Point is, they are used during takeoff and landing, and it's very concerning to find that handle in the position it was. So investigators decided to go look at the actual mechanisms themselves. The flaps are controlled using rollers, and when the plane impacted, the flaps broke free and damaged their tracks. Where the rollers damaged the tracks corresponded with the flaps retracted position. Slats were a little harder to determine as they were all completely destroyed, all except for the number 5 slat that was on that 18-foot section of wing that was cut off by the light pole. Convenient? Sure, we'll go with convenient. (laughs) Something like that. Slats on this plane are cable-driven, and I want you to imagine a cable pulled around a pulley, wrapped around a pulley, and you're holding both ends taut. But you can change the motion by pulling with one hand or the other. You got it? Yeah. Now, say a light pole cuts through both those cables. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, they couldn't figure out. Actually, you would be able to tell how far the cable was pulled on the left or the right because the cut ends have to align. Ah. So where they were aligned tells you where the flaps were set. Ah, I see, I see. They were retracted. Okay, listen. (laughs) Here's the problem I'm starting to have. Is they talked about flap setting when they were talking about weight for this runway. Correct. They talked about it. They have to be at 11% or something. 11 11 degrees. degrees. 11 degrees. Can you wait? But 
But we'll we there. talked about it. We'll get there because there's so much more wrong with this. Great. At this point, the flight data recorder data came back in full. They got everything. And it did show that there was not a microburst, but the flaps and slats were retracted. <laughs> Can confirm. Awesome. Which is actually really interesting because there are a lot of witnesses to this accident, including an airplane that was behind them, an airplane that was on a taxiway that was watching them take off, and then people on the ground all over, let alone people in the tower and everything. And everybody claimed they saw some degree of flaps on the airplane, but they couldn't determine how much. And this is what the investigator said. Um, we have the FDR. We have the wreckage. Right. We have literally all the physical evidence saying it's retracted. They were and y'all were looking at it at, like, twilight hours. Yeah, it was yeah. relatively dark and raining at this point. Yes, so. exactly. So they pretty much discounted all the witnesses, even though there was so many of them. And, you know, none of them could actually tell them for definitively that they were retracted or not. But most of them said there was some degree of flaps and there just wasn't. So all the pilots currently listening to this are probably screaming. How could this happen? There are fail safes in place to ensure this doesn't happen. Uh, is one of them the auto throttle? Let's talk about this, <laughs> shall we? We'll talk about it. One of those fail-safes is the central oral warning system, which basically yells at you if you try to take off with a dangerous flap-slat configuration. The NTSB spent a decent chunk of this analysis debunking all sorts of electrical failures that didn't happen, which I won't go over because it's headache-inducing. I'm not an electrical engineer. Leave me alone. The first clue that they had of what was wrong was the Supplemental Stall Recognition System, or the SSRS. When this sounds, there's actually an echo, or there's supposed to be, as it comes from two different speakers, one on the captain's side and one on the first officer's side. But when doing a sound analysis of the CVR, investigators found no echo. The SSRS was only sounding from one side. Since each side gets its own power, one side didn't have power to that system, somehow, I guess. This was further corroborated because the warning light on the captain's side didn't show the usual evidence of being hot from being lit like the first officer's side did. This meant that the power supply 2 of the electrical system failed, somehow. This system is tied to the P-40 circuit breaker behind the captain. Investigators determined that it didn't fail due to a loss of the left 28-volt DC bus, because many indicating lights and gauges would have been lost. They determined that they couldn't determine the pre-impact position of the P-40 breaker because of the substantial damage. They determined that they couldn't determine. Yes. <laughs> we talked about this a little bit, too, um, actually, while we were doing our research on this, but this is one thing we don't really cover in, in accidents, but I feel like in most accidents, all those breakers would just pop. Because, well, because think about it. They're meant to pop in an overheat situation when the circuit is overheating literally overheating it's meant to prevent damage within the circuit and so when you encounter a fire on all of those wires they pop i don't know if anyone let alone really pay attention to that because it's let alone impact forces can just pop yeah. them, pop them and all that so it would be almost impossible to determine which ones were popped and which ones weren't at the time of the accident so let's move on but there are three pos possible conditions that would have caused a power interruption at that breaker one, it was intentionally pulled, either by crew or maintenance. Two, transient overload that went undetected by the crew somehow. Or three, the breaker did not allow current flow to the CAWS power supply, but didn't trip. Somehow. Now, why would the crew or maintenance intentionally pull this breaker? Oh no. 
In the Air Disasters episode, one of the investigators discussed an interview he did with a pilot on an MD-82, like physically sitting in the plane, and asked him to force the plane to sound only one side of the SSRS that we discussed. The pilot said that it was possible the crew could have pulled the P-40 circuit breaker, and that he had heard of it happening but had never actually done it himself. He then proceeded to pull the breaker behind him without looking? So he's definitely done it. Okay. <laughs> Wait. To which I facepalm heavily, for the record. It gets, it gets even worse. He knew where it was, and there was wear on that breaker indicating that he was not the first to pull it. At all. And it's done frequently. But why? He explained, as did the report, that this plane was known for nuisance warnings during taxiing on one engine. Because you, can, you have to do that at a high power setting, the warning system would yell at you to not take off with this, these settings, even though you weren't taking off. So pilots would pop the breaker to get the thing to shut up. This was more likely it was intentionally pulled because maintenance had no reason to do so. So that was just the first possibility, and Miranda's mad. Nuisance warnings? Seriously? Mm-hmm. If it's, you know the plane is telling you something wrong, right? Well, it is a nuisance warning because it's saying don't take off when they're, they're not. But they're not taking off. They're just taxiing with one engine rather well, than two. Yes. So I, I understand why it would be... Annoying? Yes. <laughs> but you know you're not taking off. Right. And it's, the plane's not going to stop you from doing anything. Literally, just ignore it. Popping a breaker and then... Like, not realizing the implications of just pulling that breaker before you take off? Still a lot more to get through here that's just just as much messed up. Trust me, you're not even done being angry yet. Jeez. The second possibility was a transient overload that went undetected. There would be no warning, and because the breaker is behind the captain, it's also hard to see. Checking the circuit breakers, though, is the sixth item on the before-start checklist, and both crew members are required to do this. Because of the location of the breaker, the first officer would be the one to check the P-40 circuit breaker. When at this point in the checklist, at 8.29 and 28 seconds, the first officer said, Circuit breakers are, uh... And the captain responded, Checked. Two seconds later. And the first officer moved on to, Auto land is checked, radio altimeters, and flight director. Meaning, he didn't respond properly to the challenge response of the checklist, and it's implied that he checked the whole circuit breaker panel in a span of two seconds. Uh Uh-huh. Sure. Right. This is a case of going in autopilot. Literally. Yes. <laughs> all all jokes aside, though, uh, it's when you get so rushed. comfortable. Well, they were being rushed, too. They were half an hour late, 45 minutes late by the time they got to takeoff position. Since they went right. to the wrong place. So they're being rushed, but they're also comfortable in understanding they already did a leg of this flight right so they already checked stuff that he probably just assumed was fine it was fine which again as we say never assume so the third possibility is that the circuit breaker somehow didn't allow current through but remained unpopped the investigators proceeded to go through a bunch of electrical and physical anomalies that, if all happened, could allow this, but manufacturers were unaware of an instance where this could happen. In regards to the breaker, quote, The evidence did not permit the safety board to determine which of the three possible reasons interrupted the flow of current and caused the failure of the P-40 circuit breaker to power supply two of the CAWS unit, end quote, and the crew thus were not warned of the dangerous flaps and slats setting during takeoff. 
Now, how did the crew manage to not set flaps and slats properly in the first place? You might have gotten a sense from the narrative earlier that the crew were a little, uh, distracted. First, the first officer is supposed to set flaps and slats at the beginning of taxi after clearing the parking ramp, but the CVR showed that this is when he was getting the ATIS instead. The ATIS that he didn't already have. Mm. Right. He then had to redo the calculations of weight to ensure that they could take off on runway 3 center. Maybe he wanted to wait to extend flaps based on these calculations, but one way or the other, he forgot them. The verification of flaps and slats is the first item on the taxi checklist and required both pilots to check and orally verify that the flaps and slats were positioned correctly. In reviewing the CVR, investigators found that the crew skipped this checklist entirely. Uh, excuse me? Mm-hmm. You just skipped a checklist? Yep. Yep. Um, no? Right. So there's that. Per Northwest Airlines' standard operating procedures, the captain is to call for each checklist, and if he forgets, the first officer is to ask the captain if he was ready to run the checklist. Once the checklist is ran, the first officer then says, so-and-so checklist complete. This official process was actually only achieved once in its entirety during pre-takeoff checklists, during specifically the before-start checklist. At 8.29 and 10 seconds, the first officer challenged breaks which the captain didn't respond to, but then said eight seconds later, let's do the checklist. But they didn't even get the contents of that checklist right. Quote, checklist items were, which require actions by and responses from the captain were read and responded to by the first officer. So he was doing the mm -hmm. captain's half of the checklist. The captain did not call for the after-start taxi or before-takeoff checklist, nor did the first officer ask the captain if he was ready to perform any of these checklists before reading the items, end quote. How could one entire checklist be skipped? Well, the before-start and before-takeoff checklist have items that can't be skipped, or the plane can't do anything. And the after-start checklist is a smooth transition in items from the engine starting, hence after-start checklist. The before-takeoff checklist is cued by holding short, but the taxi checklist. Now, that one can happen at any time during taxiing, and it isn't immediately prompted by any action. But this is also amidst the whole we-can't-find-taxiway-Charlie fiasco. Right. So every step of this failure was on part of the crew, as well as maybe the circuit breaker situation, which might have also just been the crew. So now there was a small section of report that was not brought up in the episode, but I will read verbatim. Because I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Section 2.10, the captain's hearing. The captain's hearing aid was fitted for his left ear, the same ear he would have used for his radio receiver. The captain's hearing aid was not found at the accident site, and it was also doubtful he would have used the hearing aid at the same time he would have worn the radio receiver's molded earpiece. Therefore, the safety board concludes that the captain was probably not wearing his hearing aid at the time of the accident. Examination of the CVR transcript showed a few instances where the captain appeared to have not heard either a radio transmission or an intercockpit remark. However, the instances are wide, separated widely, and no pattern of consistency that could be attributed to a hearing deficiency was discernible. So um, there was that, too. That's worrying. Yeah. So, with the breaker thing, too, it was almost inevitably a crew member that pulled it. And the reason is because on a previous flight with this exact airplane, just prior to this flight, he was in. Yeah. 
You remember there was a pilot in the jump seat? Oh, yeah. So there was a pilot in the jump seat from the flight from Saginaw to Detroit who confirmed that all breakers that should have been in were in. So. Slightly concerned. Now, the last point of my points. The investigators did determine that the crash was unsurvivable. The following is a quote. The survival of the four-year-old female child can only be attributed to a combination of fortuitous circumstances, end quote. In the Air Disasters episode, they talked about how some of that was probably due to the size of her, of her compared to the seat and how that could have protected her from some impact damage. Nick and I, in doing our research, came across a 2013 documentary called Soul Survivors. There have been less than 20 commercial aviation accidents to that point that had one survivor. This film contained the stories of four, including Cecilia Sheehan, Chihan, as well as the first officer from Comair Flight 5191, which we covered in episode 34. It's very powerful, and we highly recommend it. We found it on Amazon Prime. It helps keep you rooted in the fact that these are people. We on this podcast don't want to overlook that very basic fact, but we also don't want to absolutely drown in sorrow and would rather focus on what can be learned from these accidents. Yep. Yeah, sure. it's, it's always unfortunate when people die. It's very fortunate when they survive. And we don't want to overlook the fact that they've lived through this trauma and they will have to live through being in that trauma for the rest of their lives. And we're not trying to be heartless, but at the same time, in order to make it through these and learn about these, you can't dwell too much on it. Otherwise, you won't get through. You won't learn what we're trying to teach, if that makes sense. Right. We're not trying to be dicks. Yeah, yeah. I agree. So, apart from that, question I have on everything you said. You said that there should be an alarm that tells them not to take off when there's a... Yes, the the central oral warning system. Did that go off while they were... No, it was attached to that breaker. Oh, I just thought that would control the speakers. Nope, that was literally attached to that that breaker. Because the the nuisance warning came from that oral warning system. (sighs) So that's the ultimate reason they never had the flap set. And... The biggest thing is that when the auto throttle didn't engage, that was because that system wasn't set. Because, because it was that's on that part breaker. of that. No, it's part of that taxi checklist. Right. To turn on that system that he turned on when they were at 100 knots, that's part of that checklist. That should have been a warning. You skipped an entire checklist. Right. Yeah. I don't like that. I don't like any of this. For those of you who don't just happen to have a checklist handy like we do, Taxi checklist is also not on our checklist anymore. We have... It's not part of this for a reason, I think. Anymore, it's part of the airplane's checklists. Which we'll get into in recommendations. Yes. Great. Break. 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 Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're back. 
Findings. Okay, so for findings. So the findings and the recommendations and all that in this report are pretty short. And actually, they're pretty concise, too. I like it. I, I like this. So the uh, 12 or 13 findings, whatever it actually is. <laughs> so there's there's 12 of them written in the report, but it goes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 13. I don't know. That's what's in the report. Don't ask me. It's missing 12. They found that Flight 255 did not encounter wind shear either during the takeoff roll or after liftoff. Great. Yep. Yes. They found that Flight 255 took off with its wings, trailing edge flaps, and leading edge slats retracted. Big problem. They found that the flight crew did not extend the airplane's flaps or slats. No. They found that the flight crew did not perform the airplane's checklists in accordance with the prescribed procedures contained in the Northwest Airplane Pilot's Handbook. The flight crew did not accomplish the taxi checklist and therefore did not check the configuration of the airplane. Which is just crazy to me because this is... They're going on their third leg of this trip, right? Yes. This is in Detroit. Yes. And they had to do that twice before. Yes. And as a matter of fact, that's part of why they know previously it, that the breaker was in was because also on the CVR, um, I think it was on the CVR, either that or it was just confirmed by that uh, pilot in the jump seat that when they were using one engine for taxi in Saginaw, that they were getting the oral warning not to take off. That wasn't there on this flight. So a whole part of that is, yeah, they didn't, they just weren't configured and they didn't do the checklist, so they didn't have everything. And if they had done all the checklists completely, they also would have checked the circuit breakers properly. They found that the airplane's climb performance was severely limited by the flight crew's failure to properly configure the wing for takeoff. Yep. They found that the airplane would have cleared the light pole by 500 feet with only its wing slats extended. So, so even if they had had partial yeah. extension, they would have been able to clear the... The light poles. Which, we talked about this in the first half, but there were people who saw this plane that said they saw some flaps. Yeah, supposedly. But if they had it, they probably would have cleared the light pole. Right. So that doesn't make sense. Right. Coupled with the FDR and the physical evidence, it's despite what witnesses think they thought they saw. Yes, exactly. They found that the roll stability of the airplane was decreased as a result of flying it at or below the SSRS alarm and near the stall angle of attack. The resultant rolling of the airplane degraded its climb performance, so it tilting left and right didn't help it gain speed. Why Why did it tilt back and forth? Was it the pilots who did that, or was it just the no, plane? Because... It's actually a principle. It's a physics principle. It's because they were stalling, basically. Yeah, oh. when when the airplane's stalling, I mean, you're not getting lift over those wings. So if one wing, as it dips, it's suddenly getting a lot of air o over the wing, then more the, than the other one. Then it lifts. Then it tips the, the airplane it, back the okay. other direction. So they're kind of constantly fighting the airplane, and all it does is oscillate back and forth. But it can do it heavily. You might remember it happening when we watched the simulation of Colgan Air. Oh, okay. okay. So it was doing that same kind of oscillation. All right. It's because they didn't have enough surface area over their wing, so they didn't have enough lift. It's the principle so they stalled. That, yeah. Mm. It's the principle that leads to a very dangerous thing in aviation called a stall spin. It's where you lose lift over one wing or the other, the airplane becomes uncontrollable in that direction, and it just rolls over, spins in that direction, basically. And that's what this airplane did, is it eventually rolled so far to the left, it clipped a light pole... That continued to roll it left until it eventually just rolled over inverted onto the highway. No. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. They had found that the 
airplane had been flown at or below the stick shaker angle of attack, the roll stability would have been increased, and the airplane would have cleared the light bulb. So They had a really steep angle of attack, didn't they? Yes, they had a really high steep angle of attack. So, as a matter of fact, if they had brought the nose down, there's other principles that would have led to the airplane crashing anyways, but there was a, a higher likelihood that they could have at least cleared the light poles that eventually caused a worse accident. They found that the cause unit's takeoff warning system was inoperative and therefore did not warn the flight crew that the airplane was not configured properly for takeoff. Probably because they pulled the breaker. Yes, at some point down the line they did. They found that the failure of the takeoff warning system was caused by the loss of the input 28 volt DC electric power unit between the airplane's left DC bus and the cause unit. So, the pulled breaker. They found that the interruption of the input power to the cause occurred at the P40 circuit breaker. The motor interruption could not be determined. That's that whole, they don't know what actually caused it. They don't know it. if the, it was popped or if it was pulled. I give it like a 90% chance it was pulled. Yeah, if if another pilot can reach behind them and pull it without looking at it, mm-hmm. that's a problem. Well, and you did it just like this. To put in perspective, it's, it's like foot. this. Yeah, it's like down by their foot at the bottom. Oh, okay. And on that plane Pop that they it. were conducting the interview, the investigator looked behind there and saw, like, because you know how it has a white stem? Like, it's worn. Yeah. yeah, and they saw it's that like, the, the lettering on the, the breakers around it were all worn with oil marks from being touched and pulled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so slightly we're, concerning. We're not supposed to do this, does it blind? Yeah, <laughs> we're not supposed to do it, but did you? I've never done it, does it blind? Okay, <laughs> yeah, totally, we totally believe you. Yeah. <laughs> so... They found that the light poles at the impact site did not exceed the limiting standards contained in 14 CFR parts. Yeah, I skipped that in the analysis. So basically, the light poles were tall enough? Ba- well, basically what that says is, it's not that they're tall enough, but if they're, they're within... They're not too tall? No, it's if they're within a certain distance... Of each other? Of the runway, oh. that they must be able to collapse without doing too much damage to the airplane. Oh. And rather, they went through it. Okay, eh. I mean, did it really affect that much about the crash? It didn't no. cause it. Well, but what they what they're saying is that it did not exceed the limiting standards. So, yeah. so the light it was pole was limits. fine. So, I guess someone at some point blamed the light pole. Well, because it took off part of the wing, which I get. If it had just bent or collapsed, then were the going, wing might not have come off. Come but, off, but, but they the were airplane, descending. The airplane still would have ended up. On the highway. It would it would have crashed anyway. They were still st- stalling. They didn't have enough speed. This did make matters worse. I understand. It led to a lot of debris being scattered much further, and it led to a large fire. Fire and yeah, but, I see that. But come on, <laughs> it's not the root of the problem. No. Right. Okay. Probable cause. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the flight crew's failure to use the taxi checklist to ensure that the flaps and slats were extended for takeoff. Contributing to the accident was the absence of electrical power to the airplane takeoff warning system, which thus did not warn the flight crew that the airplane was not configured properly for takeoff. The reason for the absence of electrical power could not be determined. They popped the breaker. Or they pulled the breaker. Yeah, pretty much. I'm sorry. To be clear, that's speculation. Yes. Yes. So, to be perfectly honest, it's between the two, I don't think it's the third option you talked about. Because there was a lot of somehows, and we don't understand, and... So, and this is why you have to appreciate the NTSB anyways, is that while, yes, that's the assumption that everybody has, 
Because that is the most likely situation. Because it's not provable, they have to say it's undetermined. Which the investigator in the Air Disasters episode, which, yes, they did interview those investigators, said, yeah, it was probably that. But we didn't say that in the report. But it's probably that. Right. And that's them doing their actual due diligence the way that they should be in this report. That's why we use the reports, because it's the factual information we have for the accident. And the factual information is that it was not determined. But they probably pulled it. Yes. (laughs) So now for some recommendations. And beyond the recommendations, we'll talk about what actually changed, and some further research they did. So, they recommended, the the NTSB recommended to the FAA to conduct a directed safety investigation to determine the reliability of circuit breakers and the mechanisms by which failures internal to the circuit breakers can disable operating systems to identify appropriate corrective actions. So, that was in terms of that third possibility, where something physical slash electrical happened with the circuit breaker that no one understands. They're like, hey, can you see if that happens yeah basically that's they want further research on that to see if that's even possible possible. yeah because if it is that has huge implications obviously because it it happened maybe right so they just want more research into that possible phenomenon right they recommended that to require the modification of the dc 9-80 series or the md80 to eliminate the existing central oral warning system cause fail light on the overhead enunciator panel in the event of cause input circuit power loss so that the airplane conforms to the original certification configuration so it's saying that it's sure that light comes on yeah it's certified to have that light come on pulling the breaker makes the airplane uncertified so they want to make sure that no matter what that light comes on so that pilots know you're not in the proper configuration right so there's at least some kind of warning because they didn't have any Right. That probably requires putting that system on a separate circuit breaker. Yeah. That's all. They recommended developing and disseminating guidelines for the design of central oral warning systems to include a determination of the warning to be provided, the criticality of the provided warning, and the degree of system self-monitoring. Important things. Very, very important things. They recommend requiring that all Part 121 and 135 operators and principal operations inspectors emphasize the importance of disciplined application of standard operating procedures, and in particular, emphasize a rigorous adherence to prescribed checklist procedures. This comes up in almost every episode. Follow the checklist. Do the checklist. Yes. Do what you're trained to do? Because uh, that's for, what you're trained to do. They're there for a reason. And now I will say this. 99.99% of the time... They are followed. Otherwise, there would be a lot bigger problems in aviation. We'll get into checklists after the recommendations because there was a lot that actually changed from this accident. They recommended convening a human performance research group of personnel from the National Aeronautics and Space Administration industry and pilot groups to determine if there is any type of method of presenting a checklist which produces better performance on the part of user personnel. So that's basically what I wanted to talk about. This happened. So NASA, if you didn't catch that. Yes, that's NASA we're talking about did a whole human factors investigation to determine the best way to go forward in the industry with checklists and what they found was really interesting they found that yes while there's cue points and things like that for checklists there's a few things that with checklists in general were just very wrong across the entire industry and what that was is that there was no set easy way to roll across or down a checklist it should flow. In a cockpit. There's no flow to it within the checklist very regularly across all airplanes. They found that there was no easy flow. And this led to items being easily skipped. and Particularly being skipped when and 
Particularly when interrupted like they were. Right. So a key thing was the industry decided that there should be there should be a guidance that if a checklist is not completed because it was interrupted, that you have to start that checklist over again. You have to start that checklist over Which again. Which was kind of being implemented at the time, but more so what they wanted was a way to keep track of what checklists you have and had not done. So right. at the time, the U.S. Air Force was using a scrolling system on their dashes that like you move down every time you complete a checklist. Hmm. And then at the time, United Airlines was doing something where... Have you ever seen that little thing on the internet where it's like you move a tab and it's like, yes, I fed the dog? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of yeah, like a... Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, like so, the chores list thing. Yeah, the yeah, chores yeah, list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done so, this today. They United Airlines was using something similar to say, this has been done, this has been done, this has been done. So keeping a tabulation of what checklists have been done. So that changed a lot. We'll get to that at the end. But one of the key things that NASA did determine is that, yes, there's no easy way because it's impossible to remember all these things to do from the checklist. But it is easier for the pilots to commit some of it to memory that way, if you've gone past it, you should be able to remember what you've missed. Uh -huh. um, and that is that flow piece. And that flow piece basically had them going from the top to the bottom, left, then top again, then left, then right, then all over the place. And the key thing for humans, especially English reading humans, is left to, left right, to right, top to bottom. Right. So, Unless you're a musician, then you go bottom to top. Right. But the only cases, in, <laughs> The only cases in checklists where you would forego those things is if a key system relies on another one somewhere else to be done first. So, so the whole flow thing would be doing it from one side to the other so, rather than doing it from all different areas. Right. So if you look at the checklist in front of you, it's left to right, top to bottom. Okay. So, and that's the whole idea they had. Now there's a whole bigger piece of this that really, really fixed this problem in later years, but we'll talk about that. Anyway, other things that NASA recommended are chopping up long checklists so you don't have something that's 20 items where if you have to go back to the beginning, it's a pain in the butt. Right. It's just like five or six items, right? Right. Making and then shorter checklists. One thing they specifically mentioned, which even the Air Disasters episode is like, yeah, okay, I guess, a better font Yeah. to read. Changing the font. Making, it, making sure everyone can read it. The one big thing they did change is a lot of key critical things are bold, in, are bold or capitalized. Which are both important, by the way, because then your eye goes to it immediately. Yes. So that you're like, oh, okay, this is important. Right. There's only a few more of these, so we'll just jam on through here. They recommended expediting the issuance of guidance materials for the use of, uh, by Part 121 and 135 operators and the implementation of team-oriented flight crew training techniques, such as cockpit resource management. Wow. We, yeah, look at that. It comes up every episode. Yes, but actually, this is really important because this accident was in 1987. That means that this report came out in 1988. What does that really mean? Do you remember when crew resource management became standard in the industry? Wasn't it in the mid-80s? 1989. Oh, hey. So this is really key because this is one of the first times it showed up in a report. Line-oriented training or other techniques with emphasis, which emphasize crew coordination and management principles. So all of this is just around that whole career resource management thing. Just there needs to be a standardized way of training pilots, and they found it eventually. This was in the that process of creating that crew resource management training type for all flight crews across the industry, across the world. And so for it to show up in this actual report as 
cockpit resource management. That was kind of the first time that that term had been used as a serious thing. Also, it's basically a form of checks and balances, right? It Absolutely. makes sure that anyone who's in the cockpit has the ability to say, um, we didn't do this right. <laughs> right. Because the one big piece of this entire puzzle that fell apart was the crew resource management. And it's really evident when you start looking at the mistakes that were made and how that then distracted both crew members. Not one, both. That's key. When they're distracted because they had missed the gate on the way in, they had to turn around. Then they were distracted because the rain was coming in. Then they were distracted because they didn't get the newest inf ATIS information. Then they were both distracted because they missed a taxiway and they forgot to change a frequency. These things broke crew resource management down because both crew members were focused on each one of those breakdowns. When it really should be one person's right. job. You, if you were to draw that line of whose duty is what and, you know, the captain or the pilot flying takes care of these and the pilot not flying takes care of these. And then they verify. Then if something is mistaken in one of those, that it's that person's responsibility to take care of it while the other one maintains his responsibilities. Right. And checks the other person, of course, but key to keeping them on track, it just didn't happen. They recommended issuing an Air Carrier Operations Bulletin Part 121 directing all principal operations inspectors to emphasize an MD-80 initial and recurrent training programs on stall and wind shear recovery, the airplane's lateral control characteristics, potential loss of climb capability, simulator limitations, and flight guidance system limitations when operating near the supplemental stall recognition system activation point. So, stall recovery. As a whole, that whole thing is just to say learning that point of stall recovery on an MD-80 because they didn't handle the airplane well when it was near that stall characteristic. Yeah. They did the, the kind of intuitive human thing, and that's why it's really hard to fault anybody, but if you ingrain in them the training of this, then stall recovery becomes automatic. Otherwise, the the human thing to do is, well, I'm falling, I need to go up, pull back. Oh yeah, we've gone over this before, don't do that. <laughs> right. You need to gain speed to get lift over the wings, which probably wouldn't work here anyway. They were so they were close to the ground. Feet above the they ground. were close to the ground, and I get it. But and they, they didn't have the right configuration. But so. they might have been able to save more lives, actually, still, if they had crashed the airplane in a, in a nose-down configuration where there was maybe more lift over the wings. Because they wouldn't have clipped the light pole. They wouldn't have. There's quite a few things with this. But their loss of control at that stall limitation, that was that was the problem. Yeah. In any case. Well, and when you do that to an airplane that's stalling, you're just turning it more into a paperweight. It's yes. just not, not going to go anywhere. Eventually, it's going to stop and go... <laughs> yeah, exactly. So finally, they recommended to all Part 121 carriers to review initial and recurrent flight crew training programs to ensure that they include simulator or aircraft training exercises, which involve cockpit resource management and active coordination of all crew member trainings, and which will permit evaluation of crew performance and adherence to those crew coordination procedures. Again, that's really that's building on that crew resource management thing as it was nearing its implementation in the industry. So interesting to me. So, not necessarily the big thing that came from this, but the big thing that prevents this... That changed. Electronic checklists? Absolutely. And every time I see that a computer shouldn't be involved in aviation come out of somebody's mouth, I'm like, no, 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 no. That's the wrong take on it. It can be, and it should be, if it definitely helps. 
And there's right ways and wrong ways to do that. And you shouldn't have an over-reliance on the technology to fly the aircraft. But sure. there's no point in having a paper checklist when you can have something pop up on your flight computer well, and, for you. And with those flight computers, so now this has been implemented in almost every airplane out there flying commercially, is there are electronic checklists, and you're basically forced to go through them. Because those systems now tie the airplane to being allowed to take off. So you have to complete the checklist items. You go down and you check them, and while most of them you just mark as being completed, there are some that the airplane actually is able to verify itself as being done. So you don't skip it. If it's a key thing, if it's a very critical thing, like setting flaps, flaps, yeah. <laughs> then if you press that button to say you've done it, and you haven't set any flaps, it would probably not let you check that item. And then it wouldn't let you continue the checklist. This is a key critical thing. And this is something that was really huge in changing in the industry. And now this, yes, didn't really come from this accident. This came more from development of technology. That was just an overtime got added. But my whole argument behind computers shouldn't be, be involved in the cockpit, that's not a good way of thinking that's at all. That's an old school thinking. Yeah, and... So this actually came up on like a Facebook post that I saw recently because the Max now has been recertified and it's getting ready to go back into service. And I saw some this whole argument in the comments, which I don't normally like to go through comments because, yes, they're toxic everywhere on the Internet. It's just terrible. But I was going through the comments a little bit and somebody posted all about, well, if the MCAS system hadn't been developed, you know, I don't believe that computers should be part of flying the airplane and stuff. It's like, yes, I understand that. But... But I would make the argument that Airbus has been doing that for a long time with the exact same systems, and yeah. it works. So it's not about it not being involved. The The point behind the MCAS system was good. It's just Boeing themselves... Didn't do it right. Didn't do it correctly, so and it caused the airplane... That actually has more to do behind the design of the 737, physically, than anything else, which I'm not going to get into that. Right. Because, again, I still want all the final reports. Now that we're getting closer to this thing being done, we might actually be able to touch on this someday. But this, like, we were just talking about stall warnings and stuff, right? The MCAS is there so that if the plane gets into a stall, it pushes the nose down so that so you the, gain speed so the airplane can get lift again. And believe it or not, the same system exists not even on just airliners, but on small airplanes now, too. The Cirrus has what's called the Stability Protection System. And that stability protection system is literally there to prevent the airplane from stalling. What it will do is nose the airplane over if it finds itself in a stall. And it's proven to work, even on small airplanes and on Airbus. So in in the Boeing system, it was just a design problem. This doesn't have anything to do with it not being on the airplane at all, because it's proven in a lot of other systems to work in a lot of other airplanes. And, you know, Airbus has really been the champion of developing these computerized systems to drive everything in the airplane. Well, and then the, the response to that will be, well, the pilots should know what to do. You're right. They should. But do they always? No. Right. Air France 447. Right. Exactly. So there's a lot of instances where, yes, I agree, a computer can inhibit the ability to save an airplane. But... They do still work. More often than not. 
Yes. Well, and if it's a design flaw, if it if it happens more than once, like it did with the Max, right. they take the airplane out of service, they figure out what the problem is. Right. If there's one thing this has proved to us at all, this Max thing, is that we have a much lower tolerance for accidents in aviation than we ever have in history. Because the DC-10 was a really good example of why, when the period of time when we didn't have that low tolerance. And we were willing to let a lot of things slide for a long period of time. But with computerized systems being involved, I mean, it's really been able to lower our tolerance. And it's really been able to, the technology that's involved now has really changed the industry a lot. And for us to say, you know, at this point, there's no major deaths in the United States in commercial aviation for so long, that's huge. So, like, there hasn't been a full loss of an airliner, like a catastrophe since 2009. Right. That's huge. That's over 10 years now. Yes. So check yourself before you say computers shouldn't be involved in airplanes. That's my rant, my little TED Talk. Thanks for coming to the TED Talk. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I understand that this is a, polit- a very politicized thing in aviation, but understand that also they're there for a reason, and it is working. It is working. There's well, a lot they, of proof it's working. They put systems there to help the pilots not go through, like, books full of papers. Right. Like, if you've ever seen, like, yes. we have an example of a checklist. <laughs> and mind you, paper checklists are still kept in the cockpit. Of course. For good reason. Because if there's a problem with the electrical, they have the ability to use the paper checklist. Yes. But the whole point of using an electrical checklist, especially, you know, talking about this, is it pops up right in front of you, and you don't have to go searching for it. it ju- it's just there. You can check it off while you do yes. it. And that way, if you forget something... The plane has already saved it for you so that when you come back to it, you're like, oh, we stopped on that. We need to complete this checklist before we take off. Exactly. So rant being (laughs) computers do not hinder the advancement of aviation. Yes. It's the opposite. And I'm still not advocating for or against anything that happened with the Max, mind you. I think there's a lot of problems on everybody's side. I still think the Max is too touchy of a subject, and I don't think we'll go through it maybe in like a year or two years from now because we there there's still no Ethiopian report exactly so the point being is the big thing that came out of the max crashes was the MCAS and the problem with the MCAS do we absolutely know the problem here right now with us no why because we haven't read reports yet so and we don't want to do that until there's another official report yeah. <laughs> so and that I, we know the actual problems with really, both flights. I'm really curious to see if the FAA publishes a lessons learned page on this because they really, really need to. And there was actually a lot of stuff they found because they put the Max back into design phase. You know what I mean? Yes. They found a few things wrong with the slides. They found a few things wrong with other electrical systems that they wouldn't have found otherwise. Yes. So... It's horrible that two planes crashed, but it's good because they found a lot more problems with it than it had before. And I would argue only two planes crashed in a very severe situation. Which, there were hundreds of them. Probably thousands of them. Right. Already out. (laughs) And in history, we've proven that the industry didn't react as quickly in the past. So... All that said, rant over. Big rant. (laughs) Big rant. Out of it. (laughs) Big rant, but that is a big thing I wanted to cover that the checklist did change. This is really big change in the industry. Not necessarily from this accident, but it has changed so much. Also, the MD 80 stopped having the nuisance 
warning, in case anyone cared. Yeah, they stopped <laughs> having the nuisance warning. They literally removed that whole thing with one throttle forward, unless it was up for a long, very long period of time. But still, there's a lot of things around it that they just removed so that that wasn't a nuisance warning anymore. One, MD-80s aren't really flown all that much anymore. I knew, they just got retired this year all from the United States. Even cargo? There's not really any cargo operators of MD-80s or MD-90s ever, anywhere. That said, there are DC-9 cargo birds, and there are still operating, but non-passenger carrying MD-80s, MD-90s, and they're privately owned. Not to be normal. fair, they're like good airplanes. They just... They're old. They're old. <laughs> it's what happens when airplanes get old. They the only get still, retired. The only still flying member of the DC-9 family within the United States in commercial service is the 717, flown by Delta. Thanks, Delta, for carrying on all these oldies for some reason. Yes, and I think Because they can. I think Hawaiian <laughs> might still have a few of them, too. But They're going to do some boop a boops real quick. While they do that, I'm going to thank you all for listening, as always. I hope you enjoyed the definite the madness, because, like, why? <laughs> yeah. Just, I I hate when it's a, a thing that the crew did. They do. They still have 19 of them. So, wow, that's a lot. Uh, they're, they're inter-island flyers. Yeah, they're island hoppers. They're what um, Aloha used to do with the 737. Set up uh, for 128 passengers. So, thanks again for listening. Check out the Patreon. Check out the website. I can always see when you guys go to the website and it makes me happy because I'm like, oh, look, they're looking at the website. By the way, if you didn't figure that out already, the website's my baby because I'm the one who controls the website. <laughs> yeah. So, I yes. get really excited when people go to the website. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, remember that this month is the holiday stories for our aviation stories. We're probably going to put that episode out the week before Christmas. So make sure you get those stories in. I believe that's next week. I You have to realize we're recording two weeks beforehand. So I think next week will be the week it comes out. So you have till next week to give us your holiday stories. And we'll tell you what... January's is next week. Anyway, again, thank you for listening. Thank you for all our patrons because you guys are awesome. Yeah, really. For paying us money for extra content. We really appreciate it. We really do. We seriously, we do. And we hope everyone stays safe, stay healthy. Please, God, wear a mask. Or gosh, doesn't have to be denominational. And we will catch all of you guys next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.